Hello, and welcome to Shared Space, a podcast about the power of architecture and design to make us healthier, happier, and more connected. I'm your host, Erin Peavy, and I'm so glad that you're here with us. You all, I'm so excited about our next episode. I interview the renowned researcher, professor of neuroscience, and queen nerd of all things social health and loneliness, Julianne Holt-Lundsted. And she shares how she first became interested in the topic of social connection, her own experiences with loneliness, and how she first discovered the role of physical places and how they can shape how she lived and felt and connected with her community. She shares these beautiful stories of her own life and the lessons that she learned from living and visiting places all across the globe that we can all apply in our own lives, in our own backyards. So if you want to not miss episodes like this in the future, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast so that you can always be the first to know when a new episode drops. I hope that you guys enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed our conversation. I think we're ready now. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Today, I am talking with renowned professor of psychology and neurosciences at Brigham Young University, where her seminal research has identified social isolation and loneliness as risk factors for early mortality and morbidity. Her work has been highlighted by the BBC 100 Breakthrough Health Discoveries, covered in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time Magazine, the Today Show, Brene Brown, and just about, well, everyone else. It is not an over-exaggeration to say that my guest has changed the conversation on loneliness across the globe. And yet, somehow, she stays humble, kind, mission-driven, and persistently dedicated to the truth. Dr. Julianne Holt-Lundsted, welcome to Shared Space. Thank you, Erin. You're too kind. (laughs) We're super happy to have you here. Julianne, I followed your work for a long time, and it was such a pleasure partnering with you over this last year on our South by Southwest presentation, uh, which honestly, in many ways, was the genesis for this podcast, just open up some of this dialogue around social connection or health in the built environment. And so I'm super excited to, to dive into all that with you. Before we get into that, I was just sort of wondering on a personal level, um, if you're comfortable, I'd love to ask you to share so what was your earliest memory of being aware of some of the concepts around sort of loneliness and connection? I mean, in the way that a child is. That's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting because when you mention that, of course, I, I what came to mind first was a childhood memory um, of, of sitting in my backyard yeah. on on the swings and I, I and I can literally picture like my feet in the grass. Um, I grew up in Minnesota mm-hmm. um, and sitting there on the swing because I didn't have anyone to play with, <laughs> oh, yeah. which is kind of surprising because I'm one of six kids. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there was, you know, it was always lots of, um, you know, social chaos. <laughs> <around> <laughs> 
never a dull moment, right? Um, but I, you know, I, but for some reason that moment um, stands out. And so I don't know if my siblings were all off playing with their friends and I didn't have a friend to play with. Mm-hmm. I, That's know, legit. remember feeling really lonely and, and yeah. then, you know, just kind of um, wanting someone uh, to play with at that point in time and, yeah. and like that's my earliest memory of of feeling lonely um yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean I think we can all relate at different points in our lives yeah uh yeah but you know there's been various moments throughout my life where yeah. where you know as I'm sure everyone feels um mm-hmm you know, some difficult times in high school. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, no one can relate to that. No, not at all. Not middle school either. That's funny. Um, but I remember a point in, um, you know, in, in grad school when um, mm-hmm. I was actually very close with um, some of the other grad students um, but they were further along in the program, and I remember when they graduated, and oh, I was that's... behind. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it was like our tight knit group uh, no longer existed, and and I felt very lost. <laughs> yeah, uh, I can so relate to that. And then I also remember being a new parent, um, yes. and and you know suddenly, uh, it, it just was very difficult um, to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know, uh, uh, difficult in, in lots of ways. Um, and, you know, like having a newborn and not really getting out much. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, then, I think that's yeah. universal. Yeah. Go on. Well, and, and then just, uh, you know, not really feeling as connected to my coworkers because they were at different phases of life and not necessarily feeling very connected to, um, you know, some of the other uh, moms in my neighborhood that, that weren't working. And so we just didn't have some of those shared experiences. And so it was just kind of a, a tough feeling of, of of being, being isolated. Um, But, but, you know, I've certainly um, experienced the flip side too of of having you know had really wonderful relationships with mm-hmm. with um, you know my siblings I still consider them you know some of my very best friends um, and you know friends for life right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's true uh-huh. for all of us for all of our siblings I mean I do love my brother yeah, and in fact, my um, my sister from Minnesota is coming into town today, oh, and so I'm so excited. That's awesome. That's good. Yay. Um, yeah, and so, you know, I, I, I uh, as most of us do, we, we experience the highs and the lows of relationships, mm-hmm. and, and as my research has shown, those highs and lows are all impactful. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, that's a great segue. Like, how how do you feel like some of that has shown up in your research um, or shaped how you think about it? Yeah. So, uh, you know, certainly um, when I was in grad school, I first started out really focused primarily on looking at the effects of relationships within the context of stress and coping mm-hmm. with stress. Yeah. And, um, 
And so one of the ways that, that my own relationships shaped this was really recognizing and thinking about, you know, as I'm coming up with hypotheses and, you know, as a grad student, you're really being forced to think about what's the next step in mm-hmm. what's, what are the next questions and realizing that our relationships are so impactful in a variety of contexts, not just stress. And, um, and that's what really, you know, led to the rest of my work that broadened beyond mm-hmm. the context of stress. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Wonderful. Um, so I think that a lot of people are surprised to hear some of the more drastic examples of isolation. Um, and I want to read to you uh, a quick quote from your 2017 testimony to the Senate that I feel like really highlights um, highlights some of these examples. And I was hoping that you could sort of say a few words about why, why you shared this and why you think it's essential to sort of understanding some of these as, as ways of understanding um, perhaps the stresses of, of loneliness on, on everyday interactions that may be not this extreme. Okay. So, so you said, being connected to others socially is widely considered a fundamental human need crucial to both well-being and survival. Extreme examples show infants in custodial care who lacked human contact fail to thrive and often die. And indeed, social isolation or solitary confinement has been used as a form of punishment. Like, I'm like, I read that and I'm like, yeah, like those, I mean, I know some of that research and I know some of that and it is so, I I think of some of those early studies. So yeah, can you say it? few words about that? Yeah. Um, it, it's, I think we like to think that because we hold individualism as an ideal, mm-hmm. <laughs> we yeah. like to think that we don't need other people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the fact that, you know, being independent and not having to rely on others is, 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 you know, often what's thought of as, as what we should be striving for. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and yet if you think about it, I mean, humans are one of the most, um, vulnerable species at birth. Um, we wouldn't survive without others. And, um, But it it goes beyond that period of infancy Um, and, and, you know, throughout the developmental uh, phases of life and, and, you know, throughout human history, we've needed to rely on others for survival, Um, you know, and and being part of a group offers protection, um, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, efficiency of resources um, and so our brains have evolved to expect proximity to others. Um, yeah. And and this is, you know, some even refer to this as, as a, you know, the default or social uh, baseline. Um, mm. And and so our brains, you know, need to be more active and vigilant um, when we, you know, w- when we lack proximity to others and particularly trusted others. Um, yeah. And um, and it's distressing. when we're not right and and that's why um you know it's interesting because uh i i visited a a a mental hospital in in another country and Mm -hmm. um and 
you know, it showed the different uh, um, techniques that had been used throughout the centuries. Oh, and, you yeah. know, of course, sol solitary confinement um, being one of them. And yeah. what's interesting is um, they thought that it was a good thing. Yes. <laughs> they thought they were helping, like that yeah. this is a way to to calm the mind. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yes. <laughs> Yes. Um, and and yet what we see in neuroscience is it's anything but calming to be alone. <laughs> um, right. and, and it actually um, you know puts our, our brain and, and body in the state of alert. Yeah. I feel like originally the idea was like they had padded, like the guards would wear sort of padded footwear. Like basically it was meant to be not only are you alone, but like complete sensory deprivation. Yeah. And somehow yeah. that's gonna calm your nervous system down. <laughs> And it's like, oh God, no. I yes. Good theory. Yeah, no. Horrible, horrible, horrible. Yeah. Right. Totally. And and so I mean, in instead it's of course heightening the sense of distress, yeah. but I mean, one of the things that was so striking to me is, you know, what kinds of things are we doing now that are well-intentioned that are going to be, you know, history is going to look back on us. hundred percent. What were you thinking? <laughs> and we, I mean, we put people in solitary confinement for sometimes up to years. And it's like, oh. there's, there's no possibility for us to be sane after that. So, oh, I, I mean, for some, it, it, it is thought to be torture. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and so, I mean, but that speaks to just how distressing exactly. it is um, to, yeah. to be alone. Yeah. So so that's a good. I could like talk about that topic forever because I'm like, oh, my God, we have to understand this and, and think about <laughs> and, you know, think about how our environment. I think that's such a good microcosm of, of sort of the um, sort of the larger conversation we're having. Uh, so I was wondering if you could say a few words for people that are less um sort of familiar with why loneliness and social isolation are number one, two different things. And mm -hmm. number two, part of um, a quite a large health crisis. Can you, can you help them to sort of orient to this? Yeah. Topic? Okay. So first of all, um, yeah. Uh, social isolation and loneliness are, they're related, um, mm -hmm. but, but they are distinct. Um, yeah. And so, you, you know, you can think about, Actually, being alone increases your risk of feeling alone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but but um, but they they don't always um, yeah. occur. And so so social isolation is thought to be really more objective. You know, the being alone. But really, yeah. um, it, it's it's often measured um, in terms of um, having few or infrequent social contacts. Yeah. Um, whereas loneliness is that subjective feeling, the feeling of yeah. alone, right? But um, yeah. it's it's often defined as the discrepancy between one's actual and desired level of connection. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, we can all think of times where we might um, be alone, but not feel lonely. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly moments of solitude and reflection yeah. can be welcome yeah. Yeah, <laughs> all totally. the times and, and um, even, you know, restorative, um, you know, in the, in the, in the short term. Yeah. And, um, and so, uh, you know, you might be alone, but not feel lonely. Um, but we can also probably think of times where we've um, not been alone, surrounded yeah, by others, you know, at yeah. a party, yeah. <laughs> um, 
you know, in a crowd, whatever, um, Mm -hmm. but still felt profoundly lonely. Um, And so, so um, that's useful to think about how these things um, can be separate, but of course, Mm -hmm. uh, certainly are related because, uh, uh, you know, being, being alone or having that infrequent social contact absolutely increases your risk of feeling alone (laughs) and and feeling uh, lonely. And, and I found it interesting, and you, you are certainly going to be way more familiar with this research than me. But um, some of the research around sort of that—that that the if I'm if I'm quoting it right—that essentially the feeling of loneliness um, for a prolonged period of time can sort of cause us to start to essentially start to feel like kind of we're we're the problem, and then we withdraw more and sort of feel more and more isolated, and then we start to remove ourselves. What is, what's the real research around that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I think first just to back up a little bit yeah. is um, because you're, you're starting to talk about chronic levels of loneliness. And yeah. so, um, you know, we all feel lonely from time to time. And, yes. yeah, um, well and, and so, uh, and actually it's thought to be adaptive to yeah. to feel because that's actually our body's way of signaling that we need to reconnect, you know, just like hunger and thirst signal us to, mm-hmm. to seek out food and water. Loneliness mm-hmm. um, signals us and motivates us to reconnect. So this is, this is thought to be healthy and adaptive yeah. where it becomes problematic is when, um, when this becomes more pro- prolonged. Um, and so those chronic levels. And so one of the things that you were mentioning is, is these kind of downward cycles that can, yeah. that can start to occur. And so some research has, has shown that um, uh, people who, who experience chronic levels of uh, loneliness mm-hmm. um, have what, what researchers refer to as a negative cognitive bias. Mm-hmm. And um, really, what this is is this tendency to in and and we've probably all experienced it, you know, from moment to moment. <laughs> Never, but, but it tends to be, yeah. um, you know, a little bit more more um, uh, of a pattern <laughs> for some. Mm-hmm. Um, but this idea of when we experience some kind of ambiguous social situation, yeah. that we interpret it more negatively. So, mm-hmm. you know. The, I often give is, um, you know, you, let's say you, you text your, your friend or your sister or whoever, um, and they don't respond (laughs) and you, okay, you know, are you ignoring me? You know, you, you Mm -hmm. kind of assume like, um, some kind of, of ill intent, um, or, or, or that it, um, you know, is, is, has, some meaning behind it that um, whereas it could just be that that person was driving or their battery died or they were in a meeting or whatever and it had nothing Mm -hmm. to do with you yes (laughs) Um, yeah and um, that's such a good I feel like that's such a good example of that you know that we can all relate to (laughs) right and and so but what happens is when you assume that it it you know had some meaning behind it, yeah. you may be more likely to respond in ways yeah. that elicit negative um, responses yeah. in return. So you know why aren't yes. you responding to me or um, yeah. you know can you please hurry and and so then those kind of responses, of course, then 
elicit a negative response, which confirms what you were thinking. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, And, and so that can, you know, really create this, this spiral. Um, And, and so there's been um, also related research around repetitive negative thinking. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and so, um, and so one of the, uh, the challenges, of course, is to find ways to disrupt these um, negative cycles or repetitive negative thinking um, so that we can kind of start to, to move things in the other direction, of course. (laughs) You know, I think that you've queued us up perfectly for, okay, and then theoretically this could impact our health, but like, how does it actually impact our health? And what's, what's the research that um, you've done that mm-hmm. uh, helps to demonstrate that? Well, some of the most um, robust uh, data. So when I say robust, what I mean is uh, the, not only do we have the most studies mm-hmm. um, yeah. so uh, uh, but also the quality of those studies mm-hmm. um, so where we can have more confidence and uh, yeah. I think of in, robust as like trustworthy like you you yeah. can feel yeah you can feel more confident about these results exactly. yeah yeah totally. um, is when we look at mortality um, yeah. and so first of all um, and and you know part of that of course um, you know, I, I did some of that work, but I, I'm certainly not alone in this. Yeah, um, yeah. Well said. And, but part of the reason I got into, and, and one of the reasons I chose mortality as an outcome is mm-hmm. because it's, it's not ambiguous. <laughs> um, you know, there's nothing ambiguous about death. <laughs> um, no, but, you know, when it comes to other things, you know, if I'd say we could, and there definitely is, um, evidence on blood pressure, but yeah, you know, we could have arguments over, well, how long is it sustained, and you know, yeah, how severe, yeah. And, yeah. Um, whereas death, it, it's you know, it's pretty clear cut. Yeah, um, <laughs> and well so, um, so we looked at at death as as a um, as an outcome, but yeah. really, you know, I, I, I mean, I certainly can't take credit for this work because really I was connecting the dots. Um, this mm-hmm. really is what my work did was um, really synthesize uh, the studies that have been done. So yeah. what in my meta-analysis, I uh, gathered every study um, that had, had <laughs> you know, <laughs> time, right? Um, yeah. And I've done two of these. So I'll, I'll first talk about the first, the first one was looking at the effects of, of just being socially connected. Right. And, yeah. and, and in the variety of ways that we are socially connected. And so, mm-hmm. um, I gathered every study that, that measured some aspect of social connection and then followed people over time to see yeah. whether it predicted um, you know, who lived and who died or how long they lived. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and so these studies followed people over, over years, often decades, um, on average, it was seven and a half years. Um, yeah. some studied them, you know, much longer. Um, yeah. but, but, uh, what we found was that people were, who were more socially connected across these different, um, ways of looking at that, Mm-hmm. Uh, 
were that was associated with a 50% increase odds of survival. Right. Social um, connection, 50% increase. Yeah. Survival. That's yeah. huge. And and so yeah. we had, um, and I should mention, we had uh, data from 148 studies. Um, nice. And, and so then I did another one uh, looking specifically at social deficits. So social mm-hmm. isolation, loneliness, and living alone. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this time we had data from over 3.4 million people. Um, wow. And, yeah. And, and so, um, and again, this was, you know, all the available data worldwide. And yeah. what we found was that uh, um, those who were lonely, um, or sorry, I shouldn't say it, as if it's a categorical, it was on a continuum. So um, loneliness predicted a, uh, increased risk of earlier death by 26%, uh, loneliness, or sorry, social isolation by 29%, and That's living alone by 32%. That's, I mean, that is just huge. I think right now, you know, I mean, yeah, it's huge. So repeat that. Yeah. Well, and, and I should mention that um, yeah. this wasn't just, uh, you know, a uh, a review of the data, we actually yeah. got, you know, the data and combined it statistically. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know when you're saying like, well, it's not, we didn't do the research. I'm like, yes, you can do the primary research, but what you did is I've, yeah. you so know, we, we, myself we, took, we took the data from each of those studies, yeah. combined them um, and analyzed the combined data. Um, yeah. And so the other thing to keep in mind is we, um, you know, uh, it, because it, of course, other factors. You know, it's important to uh, note whether or not um, these are independent of other factors that yeah. might explain the effect. Um, so this is uh, independent of age and initial health status. Meaning, you know, mm-hmm. of course, as you age, you're more likely. Yeah. <laughs> you're at greater risk for death, right? Um, So independent of of how old you are, the more socially connected you are, um, uh, you live longer. Um, uh, And and then also with health status, um, you know, if, of course, if you're in poorer health, um, you're more, you know, that you're at increased risk for earlier death. Um, But independent of that um, initial health status, so regardless of how, um, healthy or unhealthy you were, if you were more socially connected, you lived longer. And if you were more socially isolated or lonely or living alone, you, you were more, um, likely to experience earlier death. Yeah. Um, and the, the the quotes around sort of how it compares to smoking, um, you know, obesity, et cetera. Can you sort of talk a little bit about how it links to? Yeah. So, and I guess maybe I should kind of explain why we even made those comparisons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, you know, I've, I've, I think people are starting to recognize the importance of, of our social relationships and, and the importance of, of, you know, isolation now. Um, but I, you know, I've been doing research around this for my entire career and earlier on, you know, um, and, and I think to, you know, some extent, even now, um, people don't recognize this as important to their physical health. They, yes. they, uh, most people see it as important to their 
um, perhaps mental health or emotional well-being, um, mm-hmm. but not physical health. Um, yeah. And so I, I, and of course, um, I wanted, you know, I, I knew that if we reported, okay, 50% increased odds of survival, people would say, well, what does that mean? You know, and, and, <laughs> and, and you know, yes. we hear these news. Yeah, like, like give me something time. I can attach to. Like, <laughs> right. yeah. And it's like, Relate. okay, this is good for me this week. And, you know, yeah. I, I, and so I felt like we needed to benchmark this data relative to the kinds of things that people do take seriously for their health. Yes. Yes. And so my intent was in no way of diminishing the importance of any of these other factors. Um, It was really just to help people recognize that that this is on par with these other factors. So um, this first, um, the first meta-analysis, you know, that, that 50% increase odds of survival, uh, you know, that was um, the, the comparison that people use quite often is that, you know, lacking social connection carries a similar risk to smoking up to 15 cigarettes per day. Um, and that was, that was just one of them. Um, we yeah, had no, totally. <laughs> yeah. Um, we also compared it to um, drinking more than six alcoholic drinks per day. Um, I haven't mm-hmm. heard that one. Oh yeah. my goodness. Go on. Yeah. Go on. I'm in for this game. <laughs> um, let's see. We had, uh, we had comparisons with, um, you know, obesity, physical mm-hmm. inactivity, um, mm-hmm. a flu vaccine, um, air pollution, um, I'm trying to think of some others, <laughs> um, yeah. but, uh, yeah. And so, um, so it, it, it's, it's on par with these and, Shoot. and actually exceeds, um, the risk associated with some of these. Yeah. Um, but, but one thing that's, that's, um, interesting is that, um, you know, the, the effect of social isolation, loneliness and living alone was slightly smaller than the effect of being socially connected. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, there's like, tell us, I mean, yeah, 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 go on. So, I mean, two things. One is, um, uh, you know, when it comes to loneliness per se, um, Mm -hmm. that often gets um, misattributed to being linked to the smoking 15 cigarettes per day when that actually refers to um, lacking social connection more broadly. Um, yeah, nice. yeah. Um, but um, even though it's a little bit less, I mean, it's still, um, it was still greater than, than obesity, physical inactivity, and, and air pollution, which of course are, are huge, right? Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I'd love to talk with you about is, is sort of what can we do about it? Because I think a lot of times it's like, well, other people should, you know, like be nice to me and connect with me or like, (laughs) (laughs) respond to my texts in a timely manner. But like what, I think we forget that giving and, you know, it is, is actually an amazing way to feel connected. And I think of, you know, I actually think of, of my mom who had stage four cancer for 10 years 
and was always, yeah, was always taking things to other people's houses and cooking for them and, you know, helping take them to the grocery store and like while, while working full time and receiving cancer treatment. And I think like at the time we were like, please stop, like take care (laughs) of yourself. And I think, you know, your research to me, part of it says like, oh, maybe that was part of what kept her alive was like, she wasn't just alive for herself. She was alive for other people. Oh, yeah. Um, So, I mean, first of all, one of the things that I I think is that I think it's so lost um, is that being socially connected has powerful protective effects, right? So we focus so much on the detriment, right? Um, And the deficit and the risk associated with that. But we, we lose sight of how powerful um, our, our relationships can be in terms of that protective effect. Um, and what you just described with your mother, um, is so great because, uh, you know, it, it really illustrates so many things. I'm like, where do I even begin? <laughs> um, uh, I mean, on the one, like, first off, I, I love the, you know, the fact that, sometimes we are so internally focused (laughs) um, that, you know, it's someone else's job to, to um, reach out to us. Right. Um, (laughs) Come on guys. I'm not going to like worry about, Oh, someone didn't invite me to something. Well, you know, if I, if I want, I want to, you know, get to know people, I need to make the effort. And I think oftentimes we wait for others to make, you know, to invite us to do things when, you know, how many times are we inviting others um, to do things? And so, you know, of course we need to take more initiative, but, um, you know, when it comes to actually like what the research says, not just um, my random (laughs) personal experience. Um, uh, you know, what the research shows is that, um, so like, uh, that, that providing support to others, um, can have an even greater effect, um, and benefit than even receiving support. Um, I'm like, wait, wait, say that again, say that again. Yeah. Providing support to others can have an, um, even greater effect than receiving support. So important. Say more. So, um, you know, part of this is that, uh, that, that by, um, you know, by, by looking and, and helping and supporting others, uh, it, it, it can help build those social bonds. Right. Um, but it also gives us a sense of meaning and purpose. Um, so like when you were describing your mother, um, it probably helps also take her mind off her own problems. Um, and, and so that she, and, and help reduce some of the stress associated with her, you know, the, her own struggles, um, uh, by focusing on others. But, um, I'm sure that then she had a purpose, you know, um, and that because she's needed, (laughs) right. Um, but, uh, you know, 
one of the things that's so great about this is that not only are you helping someone else, but you're, you're helping yourself um, at the same time. Um, so, you know, one of the things that, that people have, asked me mm-hmm. quite a bit during this pandemic <laughs> Go on. Yeah. is, you know, how do we cope with this? Right? Yes. yes. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because I find myself coming back to that early research I did looking mm-hmm. at, you know, stre- stress psychophysiology, you know, and yeah. how social support um, uh, plays such a huge role. And of course, here we are in this pandemic. Uh, we're all under a little bit of stress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a little. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'm. I of course I want to be sensitive to recognize that some people's stress is a lot more serious than others. Um, Amen. And 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 so you know, um, I don't want to you know make light of that. But even you know, uh, you know, I I don't know that anyone could say that they haven't experienced any stress during this time. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, what we find is that when we're under stress, one of the best things we can do is turn to others. Um, and we, we, we want to be, um, around others and here we are in this point in time where what we want more than anything else seems to be forbidden. Yeah. Really thirsty, and the water's not safe to drink. <laughs> yes, God, that's such a good analogy. Um, and so, um, you know, these early studies of mine. Uh, one of the studies was really interesting. We we brought a whole group of people into a lab, and um, they did a, a, a standardized kind of stressor task. As, you know, something that's just challenging. And we look at how they respond physiologically. And, and so most people, you know, you have a, a, a resting period prior, you know, they relax prior mm-hmm. to this challenge. So we're able to compare um, the change. And, and yeah. people are generally, uh, gen- generally um, quite reactive. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and so increases in heart rate and blood pressure and other parameters that we, we measure um, that that get at more detailed levels of of cardiovascular functioning and uh, and what we found was that people who had um, more supportive who perceived more supportive people in their network were mm. much less reactive to the stress than those who didn't who had fewer. Yeah. And so what's interesting and and you know that was just one study. There's many yeah. many other studies. Um, not only you know from our lab, but other labs um, that have, you know, showed this, this, what's referred to as a stress buffering effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just, um, even though those people weren't even there, right. Yeah. It's just this, um, that we are physiologically able to better cope with the challenges that we face, knowing we have people who we can count on. Yes. Um, and so, you know, when you're reaching out to someone else, you're providing that sense of perceived support um, mm-hmm. so that people know 
I've got someone I can count on um, if I need it, you know, even if yeah. it's not right now, like, you know, yeah. um, you know, even if you're, you, you know, make a gesture and like, Hey, can I grab you anything? And they're like, nah, at least now they know like, Oh, I can, I can count on Erin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like if I need something, you know, uh, she's got my back. Yeah. Really? <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, uh, and, and likewise, um, you know, because, uh, that can also help to strengthen the bonds of that relationship, um, that, that individual's more likely to have your back as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so it really helps, um, both of you. Um, yeah. uh, totally. so, so it's, you know, it's just one of those little things that we can, can do to, you know, get us through this, this tough time. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a great, I mean, takeaway. Um, so, okay. Shifting slightly. Um, so one of the things that, you know, you and I have talked about, I understand you are not an expert in the physical environment meets, um, or the built environment meets loneliness, but it, it is something that you've experienced firsthand. And I was just wondering like how you see, you know, the built environment as impacting, our ability to connect and be socially healthy. And, and one of the things I'd love to sort of start with is like, how have you seen it in your own life? Um, either where you are now or, you know, places that you've lived across the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I, I think I, you know, just from experiences recognized how, um, how are our surroundings, you know, yeah. uh, we use the term built environment, but I think for a lot of people who are outside of <laughs> our field, like, what are you valid, talking about? Valid. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and, uh, sometimes when I try and com like, com uh, communicate this to my students, I'll sometimes when they're like environment, like, are, are we talking about recycling? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's such a good reminder for me. <laughs> um, um, and so it's like, well, your surroundings. Yeah, the things that are <laughs> um, around you in your in your yeah, physical world. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think many people realize just how powerful of an effect that these can have on our everyday behaviors, and um, and so, uh, you know, I uh, where I think it first became really apparent to me was um, I was doing a, a sabbatical in the Netherlands. And, um, and so this, I think anytime you leave your own culture and go to another culture, um, it helps you see things um, from a different perspective. Yeah, and, uh, and, I found that I was so incredibly happy there. <laughs> um, and, you know, people would ask me, well, what's so great about it? <laughs> you know, like, why, why don't you want to come home? <laughs> um, and, it, you know, initially it was really hard for me to put my finger on it. Um, and, you know, so I... I, I rode my bike every single day um, 
everywhere, like to work, to the market. I mean, it was my means of transportation. And, you know, I'm proud to say I even rode my bike in the rain in heels. (laughs) (laughs) Many a time. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, And, uh, but I also... uh, you know, I would walk to the market every, every day. Um, you know, we had, we lived in a small apartment, had a very small fridge. So, every, you know, we would get our food every day. And so everything was always fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, and was this with kids? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this yeah. was, this was 2000, uh, 2015. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's super um, recent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, um, so it was just, um, really lovely <laughs> um, and the fresh flowers and the tulips and the <laughs> um, and you know and I would get my bread from the bread shop that was milled from flour from the local windmill and <laughs> um, and so you know but for outsiders they'd be like but it rains a lot, right? And you had to go to the store every day. Like that had to have been a pain in the butt. And, <laughs> and <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> and yeah. so it was really hard to to That's kind funny. of pinpoint like yeah. why why that might be, um, you know, why I enjoyed that so much. Yeah. Um, and so I came back and I wanted to continue that here. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course I failed miserably and <laughs> um and what I realized is it's because of the built environment um and so you know I I couldn't ride my bike to work every day because I lived too far from work my my commute was long enough in a car as it is yeah um and I, I mentioned it's probably very um, unsafe well, yeah, and that's the thing. I live on a mountain, so it's really steep versus flat. Mm-hmm. But the biggest thing is, is there they have de- designated bike paths um, that aren't um, like part of the road. They're literally separate yes. from the road. They have their own traffic signals and and roundabouts and <laughs> um, um, and and so you know it, it was this realization of despite my desire and wanting to do it, it wasn't convenient. Yeah. And um, when our environment or our surrounding (laughs) aren't set up in a way that makes something convenient and actually there are barriers to do that, you know, despite our, our attitudes and desire um, you know, it may, it, that that change is unlikely to occur and you know i'm just giving the example of a biking no. but but it, it it affects absolutely everything and and so one of the things that i think has become so incredibly clear to me during this pandemic is um that uh the social aspects of our lives are um basically you know, ubiquitous in everything we do, because think about how much has had to change because we need to reduce social contact, right? From how we work, how we go to school, how we, our entertainment, um, you know, our shopping, absolutely 
almost every aspect of our lives um, has had to be modified in some way. And so what that says to me is that all of these areas mm-hmm. have the opportunity to either make us more or less socially connected. And and that and so I think the built environment is absolutely key and critical to um, you know how how this unfolds over time. I love that. Um, yeah, I I so I don't know whether you're familiar with the term affordance, but like literally you you like defined it without that word, which is like what what like what okay. is afford- so define the word. <laughs> if you think of something. If you think of something as simple as like a coffee cup, um, if a coffee cup has a handle, it affords being held in a different way. Um, so like, you know, you talked about um, how they had separate bike lanes and and how sort of, you know, a lot of times in psychology, we talk about um, friction and cue. So, you know, is something cueing your behavior or causing friction against whatever behavior you're trying to do. So let's say that you've said, you know what, I'm going to get all of my steps in every day. Like I've decided physical activity is important to me. You step outside and you're like, let's do this. And uh, I don't know, either you don't have sidewalks at all. You're, you're a new mom and you're trying to push a baby in a stroller and the sidewalk is full of holes and potholes and cracks and, you know, you, the baby can't sleep and you're walking on the street and um, or, you know, there's no shade, there's no trees. And so all of that is is friction and and it's taking away from, you know, the the potential affordances of, of having a sidewalk or having a space that feels good to walk. Um, I, another example that's like super easy is just around sort of placement of different things. So anything from like if you think of where a stair is placed as whether or not you'll use it and be physically active. I I think, so uh, there's been a ton of research around physical activity um, and affordances, but I think for social connection, I mean, I even think of things, you know, the, the report that I wrote is kind of chock full of those, but it's like, if you have, for instance, a coffee machine in an office that happens to be located where a lot of paths naturally cross, well, then like it affords the opportunity for people to run into one another um, because they're sort of taking their time. They're, you know, they're paused for a bit and then other people are going by and it sort of allows people to open up and talk to one another. Um, And versus, oh, each person has a coffee pot on their desk or, you know, there isn't one at all. Well, that changes changes the dynamics, um, and I think we kind of forget that that is actually shaping our behavior in ways we we aren't always conscious of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, so, okay, so you and I have talked about this a little bit, but I I'd be really curious um, if there are either I know that you know you travel um, a decent amount, um, and I was wondering mm-hmm. if there's examples of places either in the U.S. or across the globe that you think are doing well. Sort of as we think about this balance of protection from infectious diseases while fostering social support and overall health, um, and maybe that's the concept of villages that you and I have talked about, or maybe that's mm. that's something completely else. So yeah, what comes to mind? Yeah, um, so 
I've been pretty fortunate. Um, the last uh, three summers, uh, I have done a, I, I've been the director of an international study program where I bring students to other cultures. And in fact, our program is called um, Society, Behavior, and Health. And so we, it's all focused about how your culture and environment um, and, and, and society um, can, can shape your behavior and ultimately your health. That's so, um, yeah. that. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so we, we visit various locations mm-hmm. um, to get, uh, and, and each summer we, we visit multiple locations to yeah. help uh, recognize how there's not a single recipe for, you know, uh, the perfect way to do it, but rather, um, what can we see about themes and, and how it might be accomplished, um, in in different kinds of cultures, different kinds of settings. And, and then ultimately, uh, the assignment I give my students is now, how can you translate this back to the U S and, and, awesome. and, and I ask them um, to, you know, not only um, personally, but um, more broader kinds of changes. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, we, there, I, I've visited some different locations, but um, yeah. a couple that we consistently go to are um, Sardinia, Italy, and Icaria, Greece. Mm-hmm. Um, and both have been identified as blue zones or hotspots of longevity. And mm-hmm. so part of the reason I, I chose these was, um, just to, um, and, and, and this wasn't focused entirely on blue zones. Let me just preface that. Um, yeah. because, uh, for anyone that also... doesn't know about blue zones, I'll put a little link in the, in the, yeah. um, yeah, go on. Sorry. But, uh, so um these these particular locations what uh is interesting is they are both located on islands and they are both in remote villages um so of course it's it's um relatively easy to recruit um students who want to do this because they're (laughs) you know these beautiful (laughs) island locations And, yeah, and, and um, you know, happen to have amazing food. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, the, you know, relevant to what we're talking about, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I think is, you know, one of the things that has caused me to really kind of reflect is, in a way, part of, the, there's several paradoxes. Um mm-hmm. Because on the one hand, um, one thing that's common among both of these is that um, these locations is these villages, um, the, the centenarians uh, struggled significantly. Um, mm-hmm. They were not wealthy. Um, and, um, and yet, you know, living these long, um, you know, so we normally think of socioeconomic status, um, as, as, um, uh, you know, a big promoter. Yeah. Right. But one of the things that, um, is really striking is though, so even though they're this, you know, these very isolated 
communities, they are incredibly tight knit um, mm-hmm. and they take care of each other. Uh, and because they've had to. Uh, mm-hmm. And so uh, everybody knows everybody. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but, uh, you know, uh, in in Icaria, um, they, you know, our our local host was saying that um, that that you just like it's almost impossible to be to be isolated because <laughs> that, um, you know uh, is looking out for other people, and even if um, well, first of all, it, it's a very strong cultural norm that you would. Um, look out for your family but everyone is almost considered family like it's oh that's my cousin or second cousin or (laughs) um but um even if someone didn't um have someone um who is you know a a direct relative others um you know would be looking for out for them and and even um the you know the the greek festivals which the students from an outsider perspective might just assume that this is, you know, food and dancing and a big party and fun. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But the, the purpose of them is, um, is always to support the community. So every Mm -hmm. single festival um, is um, uh, designed to, to raise money for a particular uh, cause within the village. And so oh, wow. it might be um, to help pay for someone's cancer treatments. Um, it might be to repair the roads. Um, mm-hmm. It might be, you know, uh, wow. but there, yeah. um, there's always, you know, close oh, accounting and they, just, and they post, <laughs> you know, yeah. what it's used for. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but it also, uh, you know, really brings the community together it's it's fun and and oh my gosh now i'm getting off on a tangent but one of the things <laughs> i loved about the the festival is i don't know i feel like here in the u.s you know it's like dancing's for young people and you know mm-hmm. clubbing or, or something yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. you know mm-hmm. once you hit a certain age you're too old for that mm-hmm. <laughs> But these these dancing would be you would have ninety year olds and small children. Yes. I mean, like all dancing together, yes. um, you know, every age range out there yeah. dancing, um, and into the night and early morning. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I love that. Um, you know, so cross generational. Um, you know, so anyway, if you'll indulge me, I have a few rapid fire questions for you. Sure. Uh, <laughs> Let me, here we go. Okay. So, uh, first one, do you have a favorite quote? Um, so (laughs) I don't know if it's my favorite, but I, this is what came to mind because, uh, I actually have, um, uh, by, by one of my doors, uh, when I first moved into this house, I put a little chalkboard up and I thought I was going to, you know, put quotes, like change them each week. <laughs> yeah. It's been the same quote the entire time, <laughs> <laughs> but it's because it, um, I think because it's 
applies to so many things. So I guess this this could be mm-hmm. one of them. Um, it's built. Uh, it is, um, and I hope I get the quote right now. Um, I should, you know, it's become a permanent fixture in my home. <laughs> um, it's life, it, life expands or shrinks in proportion to one's courage. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, is there a silver lining to this crisis? Um, like, do you think we can see some positive changes? I really hope that the, the, that this will um, lead people to really recognize just how important their relationships are um, and how important it is to uh, really, you know, nurture uh, our relationships and to support one another. Um, uh, I've seen some anecdotal evidence of it, but I've also seen some things that make me worried that it's <laughs> that it may not be um uh sustained um but but that is my hope yeah agreed um and last one what is one thing that you wish policymakers community leaders could do to sort of foster social health as we respond to covid or maybe just in general yeah. Uh, so I think certainly COVID provides a, an opportunity for a turning point um, as we are um, having to shift a lot of things. This becomes a, a, a you know a point in time when when action can be taken. I, I think, um, and uh, so. I think that I would like to see that there are um, attention around uh, both the the social and emotional needs uh, of others, which are related to physical um, health yes. needs. Um, they're not they're not separate, um, and I think a lot of uh, people may perceive them as competing, and and it can mm-hmm. feel that way certainly. Um, <laughs> But that, uh, and some of our approaches um, certainly do place them in in competing kinds of um, roles. Uh, but that we need to uh, try to create um, novel solutions that can promote um, all aspects of health. Amen. That's a great uh, takeaway. So that was wonderful. Is there is there anything else that you wish I'd ask or that you'd like to share sort of big, big picture takeaways? Um, the one thing I guess I would just add is um, that, you know, I think sometimes people come away and just think, okay, relationships, good, loneliness, bad. <laughs> um, but not all relationships are entirely positive and our relationships can help us cope with stress, but they can be sources of stress too. And um, we really need to pay attention to the quality of our relationships. So um, evidence actually does show that conflict and strain, not just, you know, of course the extreme um, end of, of, you know, abuse and violence um, is certainly detrimental, but even just, um, uh, conflict in relationships um, 
uh, and, and, and strain um, has been associated with detrimental kinds of health outcomes. And so as we think about um, this, it, it's more than just uh, being around others. It's, it's nurturing high quality relationships. That's a good, good takeaway. Um, and being a being an active participant in high quality relationships. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Uh, Julianne, it is always so much fun talking with you. Um, And I love to hear your words of wisdom and, um, you know, just just all the things that you're up to on this very important topic and really looking forward to all the things that you could not directly talk about. Um, And I just really can't thank you enough for taking time to share all of this with us. So thank you. It's my pleasure. And, you know, I, I think what you're doing is awesome and together we can change the world, right? Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Shared Space. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to subscribe wherever you're listening and head on over to Apple to give us a review. It really helps to spread the word and we really appreciate it. I hope that your day is filled with honest emotion, kindness, and connection. Thanks so much and take care.